Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. This episode isn't about our usual subject matter. I'm not going to talk about ancient palindromes, non-existent mountain ranges, or statues on the moon. Uh, I want to talk about something that's been in the American news a lot over the course of 2016, and that's immigration, specifically illegal immigration from Mexico to the United States. And I am not going to pretend that I can give you a comprehensive overview of this topic, but I do want to provide some context for this and to talk about a particularly egregious episode in the history of immigration to the United States that happened during the 1950s. This is something that's been on my mind a lot lately, as you've probably figured out from the recent episodes on the Know-Nothings. Of late, we've probably talked a disproportionate amount about immigration from Mexico to the U.S., though it's a topic with a fair amount of history. Workers have been making the decision to move from Mexico to the United States since the late 1800s. And one player, one faction, that was initially very, very eager to stem Mexican immigration into the United States might surprise you. That was Mexico itself. Not, mind you, Mexican people at large, not most of the population, but the powers that were. We're talking about the government and industrial leaders. At the start of the 20th century, the long-ruling conservative Porfirio Diaz regime knew that if Mexico wanted to grow its economy, it didn't have much in the way of, say, industrial infrastructure. It didn't have a lot of heavy capital. There wasn't, say, a whole bunch of oil underneath it that it could just extract. But it did have something to exploit, and that was the people of Mexico itself. It had a large pool of cheap labor. That was a lot of people that could do the difficult, backbreaking, and sometimes dangerous work of, for example, growing cotton, cotton that could be sold abroad and, potentially, form a pillar of the Mexican economy. Unfortunately, though, for early 20th century agribusiness owners in Mexico, plenty of workers knew that that was a bad deal, that working in the legally sanctioned agribusiness in Mexico couldn't really compete with something just slightly northward. The U.S. also had a large agribusiness sector. The U.S. was also hungry for labor, and the U.S. would pay more. So plenty of folks in Mexico who did that kind of work made the entirely rational decision that they wanted to go to where the better deal was. But in the early 20th century, Mexican workers who wanted to enter the U.S. were in a catch-22. If they wanted to leave Mexico legally, well... There were provisions for that. They had to have a contract authorized by an official in the consulate from the country where they wanted to work. Once they had that, they could legally leave Mexico. But in the United States, companies were barred from authorizing contracts to foreign nationals before they entered the U.S. So you had to go to the U.S. to get a contract, but you had to get a contract to leave Mexico. You see the problem here. And if you think the small matter of not checking all the boxes and crossing off the T's is going to stop a whole bunch of people from doing something that is in their best material interest, well, think again. The result of not having a legal framework for immigration meant that you had a wave of illegal immigration from Mexico to the United States at the start of the 20th century. There were economic incentives to go to the U.S., and there was not a workable legal way for that to happen. 
So it happened a non-legal way. In the 1940s, the U.S. attempted to respond to this. It attempted to make a workable legal guest worker program. That was called the Bracero Program. Bracero being a Spanish term for someone who does manual labor. It has connotations that that person is especially using their arms. A Bracero is like an arm-using person. And tens of thousands of Mexican workers applied for the Bracero Program, but upon application found that they did not qualify. To qualify for the Bracero program, you had to be male, you had to be reasonably healthy, you had to not own land, you had to have agricultural experience, and you also had to have secured recommendations from local Mexican authorities. The program did indeed allow for some guest workers, but it very specifically shut out a number of potential migrants. A lot of people found that they could not pass the physical examinations, they did not have the requisite experience, they could not get the right recommendations, or they were women. It was an attempt to provide a sort of legal channel for a lot of this illegal immigration, but it did not do that especially well. It did not stop people from illegally coming to the U.S. It did not provide adequate legal channels. To be in this program, you had to check off a whole lot of boxes, navigate a bunch of bureaucracy, and be young and male. What's more, the approved of and official Bracero workers who came to the U.S. were not sufficient to meet the demand for labor by American agribusiness. So the core reasons for illegal immigration, the forces behind them, they were still there. Throughout its existence from 1942 until 1964, two million official workers would come to the U.S. through the Bracero program, but it wasn't enough. That was not enough to meet Mexico's demand for jobs or the U.S.'s demand for labor. Meanwhile, though, Mexican growers, particularly the Mexican cotton industry, wrung their hands over the exodus of labor from Mexico to the U.S. And, in the 1940s, President Avila Camacho's administration received no shortage of requests from landowners in Mexico who wanted, for instance, the Mexican military stationed at the border preventing illegal immigration. The conservative Camacho administration did not go quite that far, but they did pour resources into border enforcement and met with American officials asking for more vigorous enforcement north of the border. That time period transformed the U.S. Border Patrol, who, prior to 1943, were mainly stationed on the border between U.S. and Canada. That might surprise you, but it makes sense when you think about it. That is, after all, the largest land border in the entire world. And if you are going to allocate your resources based on border mileage, well, of course, you're going to have more guys, more enforcement, more activity on the Canadian border as opposed to on the comparatively shorter Mexican border. Post-1943, though, U.S. Border Patrol shifted focus south. What's more, in the 1940s, the U.S. Border Patrol began to change how they dealt with illegal migrants. So in previous decades, law enforcement charged with returning illegal immigrants to Mexico would simply deposit them at the border, just beyond the border. The result was about as predictable as you would think. Many people would just go back into the United States. But again, during the 1940s, there is all this pressure. And this pressure is indeed coming from social conservatives in the United States who are xenophobic and misanthropic and prejudiced about Latin American immigration. But it's also coming from the Mexican government and Mexican industry. And that's really making the United States pay attention. And one unseemly consequence 
of amped up, stepped up, increased border security and scrutiny in the 1940s is uh, this little thing. To crack down on repeat border crossers, several American Border Patrol units independently started forcibly shaving the heads of immigrants who crossed the border repeatedly. One Border Patrol agent, speaking under the pseudonym Bob Salinger, told a historian the following about a Border Patrol officer who operated what he called his little barbershop. And this is what Salinger, again a pseudonym, said, quote, We decided they needed their heads clipped, so he peeled all of them. That is, he cut their hair. He made Napashi out of some of them, cut crosses on their heads, just the long-haired ones. One old boy had a big bushy mustache they would shaved off half of it, unquote. That sort of behavior was completely unsanctioned, of course, but it became common for law enforcement agents charged with stepping up enforcement and being more aggressive to these lawbreakers to humiliate and abuse the people whom they detained. Also during the 1940s and into the 1950s, American and Mexican authorities deported people to areas of Mexico further south, such as Veracruz. That's down near where the Yucatan Peninsula is. So instead of simply taking them to the border and dropping them off, American officials would transport them to the border, and, and then Mexican officials would bring them further and further south. Importantly, this transit steered clear of urban centers such as Mexico City. Migrants who had wished to work in the U.S. were dropped in rural areas that needed their labor. Rather ironically, one of the Mexican ships that was charged with ferrying people who wanted to live and work in the United States down to points further south in Mexico was called the SS Emancipacion. Lest you think that this is not a big deal for the people who got transported down to southern Mexico, Mexico is big. The Mercator projection does not do it justice. So people who were apprehended and deposited in southern Mexico were very possibly miles away from their homes, often without resources for travel or communication. Imagine if, assuming you lived in the United States, you were from Montana and you immigrated to Canada right across the border. Then you get apprehended by Canadian authorities who hand you over to American authorities, and then the American authorities go straight past where you live, Montana, and then drop you off in Oklahoma, and you suddenly have no way of getting home. That would be a comparable amount of distance from, say, Chihuahua in northern Mexico to Veracruz down by where the Yucatan Peninsula is, and during transit, the conditions for the migrants were not good. It was not unheard of for authorities to pack boats and trains to the point of near bursting and to enforce rules violently. One deportee named Juan Silos said, They talk about discrimination towards workers abroad, where here, brothers of our own race will try to kill us. Now, this is all bad enough so far, but it gets worse. So Mexican agribusiness is trying to hang on to people to exploit them at home. Uh, meanwhile, the American government is trying to cooperate with the powers that be in Mexico and trying to kick these people out of the United States. And meanwhile, even if these people actually get what they want, which is agribusiness jobs in the U.S., that's not exactly an easy life either, even though it's better than what they would have back home. And this is all bad enough. This is all looking quite grim for anyone who wants to make that totally rational step of moving from Mexico to the United States. But it's about to get worse. A crucial turning point and escalation of this story 
is in February of 1950, when a Texas Border Patrol inspector named Albert Quillen headed up a detail that apprehended over 1,000 undocumented immigrants in four days. Quillen's strategy was fairly simple. Sweep through areas of his jurisdiction looking for Mexican nationals. And yes, this did entail what we would now call racial profiling. It meant going through areas known to have Latino population centers. Then, asking for proper documentation, and taking anyone who could not provide such two detention centers, and then bussing them all down to the U.S.-Mexico border, where they'd be handed over to Mexican authorities. So instead of doing this piecemeal, instead of just doing this on a case-by-case basis, Quillen is saying, we are going to routinize this. We are going to turn this into something that deals with people on a massive basis. And you kind of see the problem here. The American legal system is one that ideally operates with the presumption of innocence. Citizens, or anyone else, are allowed a trial, and if the state can't prove that they're guilty, that's the end of the matter. This is the opposite of that, with apprehended migrants being grabbed with the presumption of guilt, and if they can't provide proper documentation, that is, that they can't prove that they were in the U.S. legally, they are bussed out. So, right here, lack of evidence works in the state's favor, and in most other things, lack of evidence works in the defendant's favor, which is weird. That is a weird inversion of how stuff is supposed to work when you are getting accused of something by the authorities. But Quillen's strategy of sweeping through areas known to hold lots of Latinos, processing and transporting peoples in large batches, and then bussing people out of the U.S. in quantity, it had a name. This is its real name, and it's an ethnic slur. I feel kind of dirty saying it. It was called Operation Wetback. And soon this model, and its hateful racial slur of a name, would spread throughout the border regions and eventually go national. In the early 1950s, the head of the INS, Joseph Swing, implemented a national version of Operation Wetback that would ultimately round up and deport over 1 million people. Swing's program relied, again, on quick processing of people apprehended and coordination between ground and air and sea transport. This fast, sweeping, many-people-all-at-once action did lead to errors, as you would expect. People of Hispanic origin who were in the U.S. legally, including some U.S. citizens, got deported. And the conditions on the various boats, planes, trains, buses, etc. that was being used to remove massive amounts of folks were oftentimes not the best. On one occasion, there were 88 people in a Mexican holding center who died of exposure to extreme heat, to 112 degrees Fahrenheit heat, while they were awaiting processing. And this whole thing was also just horribly disruptive to the communities that it swept through. In his book, Walls and Mirrors, historian David Gutierrez wrote, quote, Not even the most politically conservative Mexican-American organizations could ignore the fact that immigration dragnets not only were affecting putative illegal aliens, but also were devastating Mexican-American families, disrupting businesses in Mexican neighborhoods, and fanning inter-ethnic animosity throughout the border regions, unquote. So what he is saying here is that This solution to a perceived problem, this stepping up of enforcement, it has consequences. It has cost. It has cost. It has social cost. It's not just the cost in, say, what do you pay Border Patrol agents? 
How much does it cost to gas up the planes and buses that are deporting these people? How much does it cost to, like, run a holding cell filled with human beings while you determine whether they are illegal aliens or not? No. It is also doing social harm to a lot of communities in the areas that it's going through. And at the end of all that, people still made the decision to cross the border, legally or otherwise. This program in the 1950s, Operation Wetback, that deported over a million people, did not solve or stop illegal immigration. Illegal immigration from Mexico to the U.S., well, it's a lot of things, but it's an economics issue. It is an issue of asymmetry. It's been, for instance, a fight between American and Mexican agribusiness about who gets to exploit a large pool of cheap, plentiful labor, and it's also... Millions of people in Mexico looking at their situation and their options and deciding, quite rationally, that working in the U.S. is a better deal, even if it's illegal. So as long as there's a certain amount of asymmetry between the U.S. and Mexico in how much people can get paid for doing what kind of work in terms of quality of life, in terms of all sorts of things, there will probably be some amount of illegal immigration. And the U.S. has historically been on the better end of that asymmetry. When you think about it, being the recipient of illegal immigration is kind of a good problem to have. It means that lots of people are looking at you and evaluating you and making the decision that you are the more materially preferable place in the region to be. And actually, that's sort of great. That means that a lot of people are making a hard judgment about where to spend their time and their lives and where to take risks. And they're choosing you. And as long as people are making that judgment, there's probably going to be some amount of illegal immigration from Mexico to the United States, because capitalism's market forces and incentives really are that powerful. They are more powerful in this case than the wishes of Mexican agribusiness or the wishes of U.S. law enforcement. As of now, September 2016, illegal immigration from the U.S. to Mexico is much lower than what it was a decade ago. Much, much lower. And the illegal immigration that does happen doesn't look like the kind of illegal immigration that we were having in the early 20th century. That image of people going across the border, going across to Rio Grande, and stealthily crossing the border at night, that does happen. But mostly people are here without documentation because they have overstayed their visas. And that is probably fine. In fact, People moving to the U.S. from Mexico in the early 20th century was probably also fine. I am hard-pressed to find a potential problem caused by that migration. I am also hard-pressed to find any potential problems caused by people overstaying their visas. However, the solutions of, say, the Mexican military forcibly keeping people in that country, or U.S. Border Patrol agents humiliating people by shaving their heads to identify them so they can't cross back into the U.S. again, or border patrol agents sweeping through towns, disrupting communities, disrupting families and businesses, and contributing to all kinds of inter-ethnic strife, or just the tarnishment of America's reputation as a place where people actually want to be. All of those attempted quote-unquote solutions, they seem to be far worse than any problem that they purport to solve. 
This is an ad-free, independent, listener-supported podcast. If you wish to support it, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be highly excellent of you. Uh, also, go on iTunes. Give us a rating and review. Uh, I am on social media. I am at Joe Streckert on Twitter, also on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. And submit questions for episode 100. Uh, episode 100 is going to be Q&A. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click the contact link, send me a question, and I will try to get to it on that episode. Thank you guys very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.